Earlier in the morning, we looked at Genesis 6 through 9, uh, the story of Noah and the flood and the ark and that, that familiar uh, story that we tell children, even though when you kind of look into it, it's not exactly a happy story, but uh, that the story of Noah and the flood. Then next week, as we continue our series on Sunday mornings, we're going to look at uh, Abram and his call and, and what uh, his mission was and what he was called to do. But in between those two stories of the flood and Abram, there's something really important that happens. And understanding this is kind of important to understanding Abram's call and Abram's mission. And uh, that is the famous story of the Tower of Babel. And so if you uh, look at Genesis chapter 10, Genesis 10 and 11... So the, the Tower of Babel story is in Genesis chapter 11, but in Genesis chapter 10, you get a very detailed outline. Uh, it sometimes is called the, the, uh, the Table of Nations. It's where all of the nations dispersed to and where they went and where they brought their languages. And uh, the, it specifically follows the sons of uh, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And uh, if you look at like Genesis chapter 2 or chapter 10 in verse uh, 2, it says the sons of Japheth were, and then it gives a big long list of his sons. And then uh, as you keep reading uh, verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. Uh, one of the things that's, Israel, uh, that's interesting about that is you have Cush uh, uh, is uh, basically Ethiopia. Um, Mizraim, is, it's interesting that my Bible translates that in verse 6, uh, Mitzrayim, which I'm assuming some of your Bibles have the word Egypt right there, uh, because the, the Hebrew word uh, for Egypt is Mitzrayim. So anyway, so with most of the other ones, it will uh, let you know what the, uh, what the translation is, but here mine just, just puts the Hebrew Mitzrayim, but that would be Egypt and then Canaan. So one of the things that you'll see is a lot of Israel's enemies, they come from Ham. And if you look at the story of, of Ham, uh, in, you know, right after the flood, he's the one who his son Canaan is cursed. And you'll see that there's a lot of conflict between uh, the Egyptians and the children of Israel, or uh, Can the Canaanites and the children of Israel. But you follow it through, and it, it gives a bunch of uh, those sons. As you follow down the line of Ham, you'll see in verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Or, that would be in Hebrew, Babylon. Uh, that, that's just the, the place Babylon. And when you get to chapter 11, you're going to get a whole story centered in on that area right there, Babel. Uh, we call it the Tower of Babel. But every other place that that Hebrew word is translated, it doesn't translate it as Babel. It translates it as Babylon because it's just the name of, the, of Babylon. Uh, and so sometimes we can, uh, as we're reading through we see the Tower of Babel, and we kind of separate that in our minds as this tower. And if, you know, there are probably people, if you ask them, where was the Tower of Babel? They'd say Shinar, and you say, well, where's Shinar? It's like, I don't know. But it's Babylon. That's, that's, that's actually what the tower is called. Uh, and so you have a big tower in Babylon, and uh, chapter 10 and verse 10 speaks about Babylon there. But then as you keep going down, uh, you get to verse 21 of this table, uh, ta uh, table of nations, and it says also to Shem, and uh, we're getting some of the descendants of Shem now, um, the father of the children of Eber, and then uh, it goes through and, and gives a lot of um, those sons also. But uh, as you go through here, you see these little notions about where people are going, uh, where things are spreading. Uh, when you get to verse 25, it says, two sons were born to Eber, the name of one was Peleg, 
for in his name the earth was palag, uh, or divided. Uh, there's a play on words with his name there, but his name is very similar to the Hebrew word for divided. But uh, that reference right there, in his days the earth was divided, there's a couple of different ideas that people put around for that. Some people think it's the idea of like Pangea or something uh, with like the continental drift and all of that. But I think more likely it's another reference to what's about to happen in the next chapter, which is the Tower of Babel, uh, the earth being divided uh, and people being dispersed about, which that's what these whole chapters are about, is talking about where people went and where this dispersion happened. Um, but notice as you go through chapter 10 and verse 5, it says, the second half of the verse, um, everyone according to their language, according to their families, into their nations. And then look at verse 20. And it says, these are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands and by their nations. And then you get to verse 31. These are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. That, that recurring phrase, it pops up uh, as it discusses each of the sons. Uh, but notice the, the idea that each according to their languages. So the reason this has caused confusion uh, in, for some is uh, you read through chapter 10, you're like, okay, so the earth is all dispersed and you have all these different people living in all these different places. You have all the, the beginnings of all of these different nations. You have all these different languages spoken. And then you get to chapter 11 and verse 1. It says, and now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And you think, well, I thought there were, the chapter before made it seem like things were kind of diverse and there were a lot of languages and families and nations and people were spread all around. So, so what's going on here? And I think just basically what's happening is he gives the very broad picture of everything that happens in chapter 10. And then he zeroes in back on Babel or Babylon uh, to the story that happens that leads to the division of the earth and that leads to the things in chapter 10. So it's almost like um, it's definitely like you shouldn't just read through the Bible always chronologically, expecting one chapter to be followed chronologically by the next chapter, by the next chapter, by the next chapter. Sometimes you'll read a chapter, and then the next chapter seems to go back in time to, to fill in some of the gaps on that first chapter. Uh, it's possible that something like that is happening with Genesis 1 and 2, uh, with, uh, with uh, Adam and Eve uh, being made there in Genesis 2 after the description of God creating man and woman in his image in Genesis chapter 1. Maybe you're supposed to fill in the gaps that, hey, the people that I'm reading about in Genesis 2 are, uh, should be like to those who uh, are referenced in Genesis 1. And I think the same thing is happening here in Genesis 11, where you have this huge uh, table of nations that are like they're all described everywhere they go, but then you get the foundation origin story of where they all went. Something that is also important to note uh, as you go through Genesis, and you'll see it here, but you'll see it uh, pop up a bunch, is we are going to get, through the call of Abraham, the origin story of the Israelites. Uh, in fact, their father's name is Israel. Uh, that's, that's Jacob. His name was changed to Israel. But you're going to get Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the story of the founding of their nation. Throughout Genesis, you get the founding stories of a lot of their neighbor nations also, though. Uh, so like Canaan, if you want to know about Canaan, uh, well, you go to the story of, of Ham and Noah and his son, Canaan, and you see why he was cursed, and you see there's going to be hostility there. Uh, if you want to learn about um, 
the Edomites? Well, you go to, to the twin sons of, of uh, Jacob and Esau, and Esau's descendants are the Edomites. If you want to look at the Moabites, you look at the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. If you want to look at uh, Babylon, you go to the story that we're about to read right here. And, and so a lot of the, the origin stories of the nations around Israel are described in Genesis because Genesis is the book of beginnings or the book of origins. Uh, it's not just the origin of the world. It's like the origin of all the major events and storylines and peoples that you'll read about throughout the rest of your Bible. And so one thing that's interesting is if there is something hostile in the origin story of these people, or if there's something sinful or, or negative about it, you'll often, throughout the rest of the Bible, when that nation pops up, you'll see that there's going to be conflict between them and, and Israel. Uh, often the, the origin story kind of defines what that nation's going to be like throughout their history in the story of the Bible. And so what we're going to get in chapter 11 is the origin story of Babylon, who's a pretty big enemy to Israel, certainly at certain points in their history. Um, Israel will eventually be destroyed by Babylon, or, or Judah will be, and Jerusalem will be destroyed, the temple will be uh, destroyed, and it'll be burned, and it'll be just a rubbish heap, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, will take all the gold from Jerusalem, and he'll bring it back and put it into his uh, temple chamber, or his uh, you know, palace chambers, and, and his treasuries, and all of that, and, and there's going to be a massive group of Israelites who are taken to be captives to go live in Babylon, and so stories like this in Genesis 11 are going to be foundational to understanding their exile experience while they're in Babylon. Their exile will give, in their minds, new meaning to stories like this. It'll be like, like um, you know, you've, if you were to read stories about some, you know, place in South America. You read stories about Machu Picchu uh, outside of Cusco in, in Peru, and uh, you've heard about it. You've watched The Emperor's New Groove. You've read stories. You know, you, you get all the information you need, and then you actually go there, and you see it. All of those stories are going to start to if you reread them, they're going to come to, you, to life a little bit differently. Uh, I think that happens a lot of times when people take Bible lands tours. When they go and they actually see firsthand some of the places that the Bible speaks about, then you're reading the story and you can actually follow along with where Jesus is going or what Paul is doing, and you can see it as, as you do it. And it makes things come to life. You can experience the story in greater detail. Well, I imagine the children of Israel being brought into Babylon, a city like they've never seen before, far more massive than anything in Israel that they've ever experienced, looking and seeing their tall, huge buildings, seeing the gods worshipped up on top of them. When they go back and they reflect on the Tower of Babel story, they're seeing a story of pride and of violence and of a ruthless nation that is, that is uh, trying to conquer more and more, build up for itself, not let people disperse. There, there, there's probably a lot more that goes into this story in their thinking uh, after their Babylonian experience. But for our purposes, we're going to be in uh, Genesis 11, and we're going to start reading through, uh, through the story, and we're going to see the way that uh, I think there's some important biblical themes that are introduced that will carry through the rest of the Bible. So Genesis 11 and verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Um, so there's a couple of clues here that something bad is about to happen, and one of them is it says they're traveling east. Uh, again, that, that's in the Bible. 
whenever, or in Genesis at least, east tends to have negative connotations to it. Uh, now, there might be a reason for that. When, when Israel, to the west of Israel, was just like a sea, you know, and there, there were some things they were afraid about the sea, but all of their enemies were to the east. And so whenever you talk about going east, you're talking about doing something dangerous. Uh, and so in these origin stories, when Cain leaves, he goes, he's going to go east. And when, uh, uh, you know, with Lot and, uh, and uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and that whole story, Abram and Lot and that story, they're gonna, Lot's going to choose east. And so you'll see that come up over and over again. And right here, you're going to see it right here. They travel east and they find a plain in the land of Shinar and they settle there. And then they begin to say to one another, notice verse 3. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Um, that's interesting. The phrase that begins this is, come, let us. And then you'll see it again in verse uh, 4. They said, come, let us build a tower for ourselves, uh, or, or let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heavens. Otherwise, uh, we might be scattered throughout the whole face of the earth. All right. Notice how both of these sentences begin with that phrase, come, let us. Um, that should be reminiscent of some earlier conversations uh, and a conversation that's just about to happen here in a minute. As you continue to read chapter 11, you'll see God in verse 7 say, come, let us go down and confuse their language. Um, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, the very initial creation week, when you have God uh, on day six, when he is creating all the animals, then he stops and he says, let us make man in our image. God is often the one who, in Genesis, when he begins to speak, says something like, let us, and then he describes what he wants to do. The language of God is being used by these people. Uh, what they are supposed to do is to be a people who make God's name great. But instead, what they're trying to do is, in essence, take the role of God so as to make their own name great. And as, as for God being the one who dwells in the heavens, they want their own city to reach into the heavens. And you see in verse 4, when it says, come, let us build for ourselves a city. Uh, this is something that they're doing for themselves. Rather than to the glory of God, it's for themselves. And it's a tower whose top will reach into the heavens. And let us make for ourselves a name is the other thing they want to do. Let us make for ourselves a name. Instead of trying to be a people who bring glory to God's name, there are people who bring glory to their own name. And they're doing this. Otherwise, they would be spread across the whole earth. Um, now, that phrase is interesting because I don't know exactly what their fear is about being spread across the whole earth, but I do know that there are a number of times in Genesis, in the first chapter and in the ninth chapter, where God has given the blessing to his people to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And it seems like there's a pushback on that idea, let's not do that. Maybe we'll be fruitful and multiply, but we're going to do so to our own glory. We're going to do so for our own name. We're going to do so for our own city, and we're not going to fill the earth. We don't want to do that. We want to stay right here. And so you see a lot of it is somewhat subtle. Uh, you don't see anything in here where they're just walking around saying like, hey, let's all disobey God and let's be violent and hateful. But what you do see is the beginning of, uh, of people going east. 
You see them founding a city. And by the way, that also in Genesis is going to be a clue that something bad is going to happen. Cain is the one who, finds the, who founds the first city. Then you have uh, the story like the Tower of Babel. You'll have uh, Sodom and Gomorrah as a city. Pretty much any big city that you run into, then you'll get Egypt a little bit later. It's going to be a place of hostility, a place of violence, a place of injustice. And so that's what you have happening right here. A city in the east where people begin to speak as if they are God, who are going to build things for themselves to make their own names great. And there is in this idea no consideration of fulfilling God's command or his, uh, his vocation of filling the earth. They are going to reject that idea. And they're also going to reject the idea of looking after any other peoples or, look, or trying to honor God himself. This is something that's entirely about them. And the reason that they're able to do it is because of what happens in verse 3. When they say, come, let us uh, make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick and stone, and they used tar for mortar. Now, that might not seem like much, but what that is, is advancement. It's advancement in human technology and in human ability and in innovation. Prior to this, it seems that the way that they would have to build would be by using stones. You would take stones and you would build your house or you would build a tower with stones. But what's the problem with that? You have limited resources. Once your stones are gone, uh, you can't really build anymore. You have to start bringing stones from somewhere else. And that's a really difficult thing to do. But they've created a way of making their own stones. And all of a sudden, their supply is limitless. They can make the stones from the earth itself. And so they don't need to travel to find stones. They don't need to try to break them and to fit them into pieces. They can create their own stones and they can make many of them very, very quickly. That's what their brick making is given the ability to do. So now they can build whole cities and massive cities and towers larger than anyone's ever seen before. And they can do so because they've learned how to, on their own, create. They can do what they think God does. They can become like God now. In many ways, I think it's similar to the idea of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to say, I can have wisdom for myself, and I don't need God's wisdom anymore. I can have it to where my own eyes are open, and I can determine what's right and wrong without respect to God. Well, here it's like we can become a great people, and we don't need God anymore. We have our own ability to create. We can make bricks. We can make towers that reach into the heavens. We can do things that no one has ever seen before. And I'll say... You know, we have skyscrapers in the world today, and I don't know that there's anything inherently sinful about a skyscraper, uh, but I do think you can very easily get into sinful realms when you start to believe that your innovations, your technological advances, your uh, human ingenuity becomes what sustains you and makes you great, rather than focusing a little bit less on your own greatness and a little bit more on who God is. If you build skyscrapers to your own glory, then yeah, that is a problem. If you make cell phones to your own glory and they cause you to forget about God, yeah, that could be a problem. Uh, Technology can be something that you use and utilize along with God to the furthering of, of what God has created you to be. Or it could be something that you use in an attempt to replace God. And that's where it becomes a major problem. Here, uh, we have them creating uh, these, or a large tower and a big city, and it's creating a problem. Now, most of the, the artwork I've ever seen, usually in children's books, of the Tower of Babel, 
but you, I've also seen it in, in actual paintings and, and things like that. It's something kind of like a big spiral building that goes higher and higher and higher. I don't know if you've ever seen that before, uh, but that's usually kind of the picture that, that often pops up. That's probably not what this building looked like. Uh, it probably would have something more along the lines of uh, the, the shape of like a, a pyramid with the top of it cut off so that it's flat on top. And in the front of it, there's a big, long staircase that leads up to the top. Uh, you say that because they've excavated a lot of these massive building projects in ancient Babylon. It's called a ziggurat, a uh, Babylonian ziggurat. They have, it's huge. It's like, it's almost like a mountain. Like until they excavated them, it just looks like a mountain. And then once you kind of start pulling back all of the, the excess dirt that has accumulated over the years, you realize this is a, a man-made structure. It's a building. It's huge, like a pyramid. And it has a staircase in front. And the idea is the gods that they worship live up at the top of it. So it's not necessarily about building high enough to get to a place called heaven where like you pop through the clouds and you can see God. It's more of a way of building up into the heavens, into the sky, and having a place where God becomes your God in your city and he kind of becomes your own personal pet God. And you can use him for what you want to use him. Basically, it's making God an idol there for their city uh, in order to make their own name great, which is not really what the purpose of, uh, of a relationship with God is. And so all of this is going on in verse 5 is when the Lord comes down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men have built. So this is when God comes to check on things. Uh, you know, it is interesting how often that type of language is used in Genesis uh, and throughout the Bible, but it happens a lot in Genesis where God will come down to check on things. Uh, with Sodom and Gomorrah, a couple chapters from here, it will say that God has heard the cries of the city and that things are really, really wicked there. And so God's coming to, to check on things. And uh, it's a really terrible experience when he comes. He ends up staying and talking with, with Abram and two angels go to the city and have a terrible experience there. Uh, but that was God coming to check on it, how bad Sodom and Gomorrah really is. Um, with, with Cain and with Adam and Eve, in both of those instances, after their sin, God shows up to check on things. God talks to Cain and says, where's your brother Abel? Uh, he, with uh, Adam and Eve, he says, where are you? And, and God shows up. Now, in each of these instances, I'm pretty sure that God knew where they were hiding. He knew what happened to Abel, and he was already aware of what was happening here. Uh, but when it talks about him coming down to check on things, it's a reminder, I think, that God doesn't just flippantly uh, deal out punishments and retribution. God watches carefully. God is, uh, he is meticulous before he punishes. And God, uh, in anthropomorphic terms, is able to come down and to see exactly what they are building. And then verse 6, the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have the same language, and this is what they began to do. Now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. That's a remarkable statement. Like, that God sees human beings working together with one language, and he says, wow, this is what they've done. Now they'll be able to do anything. I mean, the, when I think of humans, I often think of our, our limitations. But this passage really seems to give the impression that human beings can accomplish an awful lot, and that God is aware of that. God is aware that when humans work together, when they communicate well with one another, when they are united, there is a tremendous amount they can accomplish. By the way, 
that's an idea that's not only found right here, but I think that's one of the reasons that Christians are called to be a united people with one another. Uh, because when you do work together, and when humans are actually become part of a community, there's a tremendous amount that they can accomplish. There's nothing they can't do, is what this passage is saying. It's like they can do anything they set their mind to. And so why is it that God, seeing humans working together, communicating well, would come and want to destroy that? Well, it's because you can come together for different purposes. In the Tower of Babel story, they're coming together for the purposes of, of pride, of manipulation of the divine, of building for themselves a great name. One of the things that's so fascinating about this story is that phrase that they want to make their name great. Compare that with what happens in Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abram. In chapter 12 and verse 2, God says to him, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. It's like everything that the Tower of Babel wanted to steal for themselves, God's willing to give that. God was willing to give it to Abram. I'll make you a great name. But it's when humans try to kick God out of the process and, and through manipulation gratify themselves and steal it to make their own name great, that's where the problem comes in. And so there's nothing necessarily even wrong with having a great name, but God should be the one who gives it to you rather than you excluding God to get it for yourself. And with the Tower of Babel story, they are uh, able to do anything. And so God says in verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language. The word confuse in Hebrew sounds a lot like the Hebrew word Babylon, uh, in, in the city Babylon. And so that's the, the origin of the name in the story. It sounds a lot like uh, Babylon. And so we have the English word like Babel, like someone's just babbling. Uh, that's kind of where, where our word uh, comes from, is the story and the idea of confusing language. Um, but it says, uh, they confused the languages of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So God gave the divine commission, I'm going to bless you, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And apparently humans said no. Instead, we don't really need you. We can be great on our own. We have our own technology. We have our own advancement. We have our own abilities. We have our own ingenuity. We're brilliant. We're smart. We're hardworking. We're creative. We can do this on our own. We can build a city that no one will be able to conquer. We can build a tower that reaches up into the heavens. We can have our own places of worship. We can have our own gods. We can do what we want to do. And when God sees humans doing that, he realizes, I don't know if realizes is the right word, but he knows they can. They can build great cities. They can conquer any enemy. They can do incredible things. And so what God does, and this is one of the only times God does it, he takes unity and he destroys it and brings about division. And he creates division in the world rather than unity. Throughout, you know, the story of the Bible, uh, one of the grand uh, ideas is that God is constantly working towards 
unity, to bringing the nations together. And in the church, that's what you see happening, is the nations being brought together. And Paul going to nations to proclaim the same Lord, and like the, that we can all have one Lord. When Jesus, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into every nation and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. In, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The idea there is every nation can have one king and be united together. And yet in this origin story, it's the opposite of that. So why is that? Well, it becomes the founding principle of your unity. The founding principle of their unity was their own greatness to the exclusion of God. We can do it on our own. Our technology becomes our God. Throughout the rest of the story, when God is trying to reunify the world, it's going to be founded on something much better than that. It's going to be founded on a relationship with him and as, as savior and provider and, and the object of our love rather than our own self-gratification. And so that story is going to take time. But ultimately, that's the story that Abraham is called to bring about. So when you get to chapter 12, the first couple of verses, when he says to him, uh, chapter 12 and verse 1, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. But then notice verse 3, and I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. With the Tower of Babel story, what happened is they took their little Babels with them. The people were divided, they were spreaded, their languages were confused. But in their cities and in their nations, they made them all little Babylons. They made them all places of, of, of sin and places of violence and places of pride. And so what God plans on doing is not causing another flood to wipe out the whole world again. But he chooses a man through whom he will ultimately bring back blessing to all of those nations. And you see this image pop up over and over again throughout the rest of the Bible. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, I think you'll see an image of what God ultimately hopes for to happen again. And it's not for necessarily all of the nations to be just utterly destroyed, but it's for there to be a reunification. This time not in Babylon, but in Jerusalem. And not for pride, but to the worship and the glory of God. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, uh, start, start, I guess start in verse 2, it says, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and he will raise, uh, it, it, and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream into it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Notice that language there, come, let us. But now when they say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, they're talking about going there to worship God, to join together with God, not to replace or exclude him, but all of the nations are pouring to go to be with God, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And then notice, they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn of war. 
He's talking about peace among all the nations. What are you going to do with your weapons? You're going to turn them into gardening tools because there will be so much produce and there will be no wars. There's no point in you to have swords and spears, but having plows and, and, and having uh, gardening tools, that will be able to certainly help. And all of a sudden you have this picture of peace among the nations when everything we've seen in Genesis 1 through 11 has been war among the nations and violence and flood and murder and... and, and like retribution. You've seen those things popping up over and over again, but now you're starting to get some pictures of a day is going to come when these things will be reversed. Look at Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, you have this image of these nations, these Babylons, and one of them literally is Babylon, coming up out of the sea. And uh, as they do so, they are ferocious beasts. And the first one is like a lion, the one that represents Babylon. It's like a lion with eagle's wings. And I'll tell you what, a lion is terrifying enough, but you put some eagle's wings on it and it can fly around, that's a ferocious animal that you would want to avoid. Uh, then the next that comes out is a bear, and it has one shoulder bigger than the other, and it's chewing on ribs, and it's a ferocious animal. The next one that comes out is a leopard, and the leopard also has wings, and it's swift and fast and is able to destroy and kill. And then the next one that comes out, it's not even described as any one animal. It's just a beast with like multiple heads, and it's ferocious and sharp teeth and, and all of this. And, and you see these animals come out, and every one of them you wouldn't want to run into on a hike. Like every one of them are predators who seek and kill and destroy. And the point is, that's what so many of these world nations and empires are like. Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, Rome, you can go back, Assyria, Egypt, Babel, like the story of the Tower of Babel, the world of the pre-flood world, like that's how nations thrive, is by conquering other people and through warfare and through weaponry and all of that. And so when you're thinking, okay, which of these is going to be the most powerful one that's going to bring forth God's will on earth? You realize none of them are, but instead he chooses one like a son of man, and he brings him riding up on a cloud to the Ancient of Days who's seated on the throne, and instead of giving the kingdom to any of these ferocious beasts who try to take their own kingdoms by power and might, he gives his kingdom to the Son of Man. In chapter 7 and verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man is coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Why? That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. Notice who's pouring into this one unified kingdom. It's people of every language, people of every family and every nation. You're starting to get a glimpse that the story of the Tower of Babel isn't the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story, and God will reunify the world again through, uh, through one whom he sends, like a son of man. Or they'll all pour into Jerusalem again, and you'll see all of the nations at peace with one another. You'll see people who had spoken different languages now with one voice worshiping God together. This idea continues on into the New Testament. Look at Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, this is that famous Pentecost sermon. And there are a good number of reasons that uh, the Pentecost sermon, I think, is intentionally written 
to echo back to the Tower of Babel story to show us that in the church, Babel is being reversed and the peace uh, among the nations is being restored. When you look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. All right, so that's a phrase that you know, it, the Tower of Babel story ends with uh, the people all in one city ending up in every nation under heaven, uh, every nation throughout the whole earth. The story of the day of Pentecost is people from every nation under heaven ending up back together in one city. Uh, you keep reading, and it says uh, the, the disciples start speaking, and the people are amazed. Verse 7, it says are, uh, they're amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? So at the beginning, people all of different languages are now able to hear and understand in one language together again. The diversity of languages is being reversed through the gift of tongues to where they're all able to speak and understand in one language. And then it goes on and it gives a small little um, miniature table of nations, like you had in Genesis 10. It says, uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the distri uh, districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear each of them in our own uh, tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Notice they are not speaking of their own greatness, like in the Tower of Babel story, but they're speaking of the mighty deeds of God. You have the world that at one point was diverse and spread out in different languages. Now in the church, you're starting to see a picture of what Babylon reversed looks like, the Tower of Babel reversed. And you see that here in Acts chapter 2, and it ends with, uh, salvation being proclaimed, people being baptized, and proclaiming the one Lord and ruler together. No matter what nation they're from, they now worship the Lord together. I believe that's the foundation of Paul's missionary journeys, the idea of going out and reunifying the nations. Something that's really interesting to note, and it's important to note, is that the word nations is actually the exact same Greek word and Hebrew word as uh, Gentiles. Whenever you see the word Gentiles, it's the exact same word as nation. It just depends on how you translate it based on the, the context. So when you're talking about Jews and Gentiles getting along together, you're talking about Jews and the nations getting along together. Uh, when you're talking about bringing uh, people who had been di a diverse and different group into one family, you're talking about uniting nations into one family. That goes back to the image of the Tower of Babel story. And this continues... Uh, through the baptism language of the New Testament, you see constant uh, reference to, uh, or not constant, but regular reference to uh, being baptized so that there's no longer any male or free, uh, uh, or slave or free, male or female, Jew and Gentile. Uh, you see that in Colossians 2, and you see it in 1 Corinthians 10, you see it in Galatians chapter 3. But I want to uh, close by looking at Revelation 7. In Revelation 7, you get this image again, and this is of, uh, of a more glorious future day where you see the ultimate depiction of the Tower of Babel story reversed, and this is the ultimate hope of what we Christians are longing for. In Revelation 7, in verse 9, 
After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they would cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. You have all nations in one voice crying out to the salvation of God and to the Lamb together. Um, the story of the Tower of Babel, it's not just a cute little kid's story about a big building. Uh, it ends up becoming a foundational theme that the rest of the Bible is dealing with. You have division in the world around us, and they all have their different kings and their different languages and their different laws and their different lords and their different ways of doing things. They're different militaries. They all have their weaponry. They all fight against one another. And yet, what God is ultimately hoping to do through his redemptive plan and through the bringing about of the Messiah and through his own kingdom is to have a kingdom where it doesn't matter what language you speak, doesn't matter what borders you're in, doesn't matter what nation you're in, you can be united with people from throughout the world in the glorification of one king and one ruler above all. Um, we have a tendency to sometimes... Uh, or we can have a tendency to sometimes lessen that message and forget that there actually is a really powerful story in the Bible about worldwide unity. And I think Christians should remember that, pray for that, long for that, and work towards that. It's one of the reasons I think mission work is so important. It's a way of bringing a unifying message throughout the whole world. And uh, it's something that I'm happy that we're involved in here, and it's something that I hope we, we continue to be involved in for a very long time. But bringing unity to people uh, throughout every nation on mankind is one of the goals and purposes and calls of the church. And it goes back to the story of the Tower of Babel when that division uh, is described in detail and how we overcome that through the message of Jesus. Anyway, if there's anyone here uh, tonight who... Maybe you look at the world around you and you say, well, I don't know how to unify all the nations of the world, but I know that I myself need to be reconciled with my family here or with God. Uh, we pray that you would let that be known. We can help you overcome that. We can help uh, in, uh, pray for you. If there's anyone here who would want to become a Christian tonight, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.